If you've been listening to my show for a while, you know how I like to talk about a gut biome test. I call it a fancy poop test. It's a fancy name for a poop test. And it's going to tell us what the ecosystem is in your gut. And why that's important is since food's the best medicine, it's going to tell us, here are your superfoods just for you to eat. Here are the foods for you to avoid. And here's everything else. Eat this a lot. Eat this a little. Now, my team has been very busy and they got an amazing deal. For anybody that wants to do this test, you can do it at home. You don't need a doctor's orders. All you have to do is just go to Viome, V as in Victor, I-O-M as in Mary, E.com, Viome.com. And at checkout, use the secret code, Julie Ryan, and you'll get more than 50% off. Don't put any spaces in there, just Julie Ryan. It's an amazing test. It's going to give you tons of information. I've done it several times myself, and you're going to be thrilled with the information you get because it'll give you a program just for you. Give it a whirl. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort people all around the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And do I have a treat for you this week? (laughs) What a treat. Clark Strand is with us and he's one of my favorite people. He and his wife, Perdita, are one of my favorite people, some of my favorite people on the planet. And uh, so welcome, Clark. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm really, really happy to be back. I have about seven books on my desk. And of the seven books, two of them you've written or either co-authored, one or the other. So I'll tell you what I think of you. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, we we wrote Way of the Rose and uh, uh, and Waking Up to the Dark. Waking Up to the Dark, I wrote. It was the first book in the trilogy. Uh, first book being Wake, Waking Up to the Dark. The second, The Way of the Rose. And the third, which will be coming out next year by Perdita, uh, is called Take Back the Magic. And uh, so I wrote the first book, we wrote the second book together, and she's writing the third book. And all three of them are designed to be bedside books. These are, we wanted to write books that people would want to keep close to them. So if you, if you, Julie Ryan, have two of them at our bedside, that's good enough for me. I guess we must have succeeded. Well, it's not my bedside, it's in my <laughs> office. And I want to tell you, it's anchored by my son's baby shoes that have been bronzed and glued on to bookends. So it's a very sacred place, Clark. That's wonderful. And I probably spend spend more time in my office, I think, than I do in bed. So (laughs) even better. All right, everybody, let me tell you about Clark and tell you why he's such an extraordinary guy. Clark Strand is an author lecturer on spirituality and religion. A former Zen Buddhist monk, Clark's been studying the world's religions for more than 30 years and has written numerous books and papers on the subject. We'll get into that in a minute. Clark is the former senior editor at Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, and his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. That's pretty heady territory there, (laughs) sir. With his wife, Perdita Finn, Clark is also the author of The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine, Hidden in the Rosary, and the co-founder of an international non-sectarian rosary fellowship. How many members do you guys have now? I think about 20,000 at this point all over the world. Holy mackerel. Do you you know how many (laughs) countries? 
we haven't, you know, kept a count of, of, of the countries necessarily, but I will tell you this. We have we have a website, wayoftherose.org, where people can go and look for a Zoom meeting. We have rosary Zoom meetings, you know, uh, uh, all day long, pretty much. And we have, you know, people dialing in from Australia and Asia and South America and, uh, you know, Canada, England, you know, Western Europe, all over the place. So, uh, so it's really become quite a far-flung fellowship at this point. And I got to be with you, and I brought a couple of my childhood girlfriends, and on a New Year's Eve a couple of years ago. Right, I remember. And, and we did their rosary on New Year's Eve, and it was really extraordinary. And I thought, what a <laughs> way to start off the new year. Oh, my gosh. What initially led you to become interested in religions, and furthermore, to become a monk at that? Oh boy! Well, I didn't start off as a Buddhist. Obviously, I grew up down south, and you know, my my parents were church-going folk. Uh, my uh, father passed away this past summer, but uh, both of my parents were trained in seminary. Neither one ended up ordaining, and you know, like becoming you know a, a professional religious person as such. But my father got up every morning and read the Bible before everybody else was up. Uh, and my mother was interested in, uh, you know, spiritual subjects from, you know, uh, the time I was a small child. I remember, you know, she had all kinds of, you know, Eastern religious texts like lying around on the coffee table. Be here now. You know, there was a whole earth catalog was everywhere. You know, So, uh, so, you know, from a pretty early age, I was exposed to, to spiritual material. My grandmother, too, was like that. You know, she was a early sort of new thought thinker. So I and came I, by it, honestly. <laughs> I, I was so honored this summer when your dad was in the last days of his life. You and I were in touch via text primarily. Uh, yeah, it was incredibly helpful, Julie. I have to tell you, you know, I was uh, I was at sixes and sevens, you know, my uh relationship with my father, which, you know, I sort of reconciled with him later on in life, but uh, ours was a kind of a troubled relationship. He was a private school headmaster and quite a disciplinarian, and he was my stepfather, which complicated everything. And so growing up, we butted heads a lot, and uh, I did not feel really very much seen by him. But uh, as he got into his 80s and 90s, I think he suddenly decided he wanted to set things right. <laughs> so he did a lot of did a lot of spiritual work in his final years, but still, you know, when it was clear that he was dying, I really had no idea, you know, after all the, you know, these years of doing spiritual practice and things like that, you know, when, when your parent dies, you know, you're just in the same boat as everybody else. And I really didn't know where to turn. And Perdita said, you need to call Julie. You need to text Julie. And she handed me my phone and dictated your number. And she said, do it now. <laughs> and I did. And you told me what I what I needed to know, which was that, uh, you know, his time was getting really close. And it was. And uh, we hopped on a plane. We went down there. <clears throat> I got to see him while he was still lucid. And then uh, it was clear that, you know, he might take a while longer to die. And so we flew back home. Uh, you know, after a week or two. And, uh, and then, you know, we were home for a couple of days and Perdita sat up in bed, uh, you know, right. I guess it was, it was the, uh, the, it was the eve of the feast of St. Anne. So it was the July 26th and she sat up in bed and, you know, Perdita spends her time working with the dead. So, you know, when she says something like this, I pay attention. So she said, your father's dying tonight. 
And there was no expectation that he would necessarily die, die that night. But I stayed up and, uh, you know, said a rosary and, you know, went out to the shrine to Our Lady of Woodstock at the end of our driveway, lit a candle. And, uh, you know, I got back in bed and uh, dozed off for a while. And uh, then I woke up, felt a little restless. And there was a text that had just come in that moment from my sister saying he'd die. But, you know, while we were there uh, in Alabama, just a little south of you down in Selma, where my parents retired, uh, you know, a lot of the things you predicted happened. You know, my father was seeing visitors. You know, my father, the private school headmaster, with his button-down shirts and his bow ties. Man, he was surfing the bardo <laughs> the last <laughs> week or two of his life. He was seeing amazing things. And, uh, you know, you know, with your guidance, I instructed, uh, you know, the, the hospice nurses and things not to contradict him with anything, but to ask him what he was seeing. Like he would say, is there somebody in the hall? And rather than, uh, uh, you know, one of them saying, uh, no, Dr. Strand, uh, there's no one in the hall. They say, oh, who do you see there? Tell us. And and he did. So I it could probably fill a book with the, the things that he reported that last uh, that last week or two, but I was well prepared by you, and I am eternally grateful for that. Oh, my honor. And I remember in one text back and forth with you, you said, yeah, we're going we're to go down in a few weeks. I said, oh, I think we need to go down now. <laughs> so <laughs> you, were right. I got a text. you were right. I got a text yeah, the next day, right. and I said, do you need me to pick you up at the airport and drive you down to Selma? Well, you know, that might have been a good idea because my sister picked us up at the airport and drove us. And I don't know if you've ever seen Night on Earth, the Jim Jarmusch film about the taxi drivers. And <clears throat> this was a little bit like something out of that. She was filled up with the spirit and she was talking a mile a minute, but I'm not sure how many times she looked at the road. <laughs> so well, a couple of times, Perdita said, I wish we had called Julie. <laughs> Oh, heavens. But you're still here to tell the tale. Are, so are, I guess exactly. that's all good. What's the difference between spirituality and religion, in your opinion? Is well, there I, you know, yeah, I don't know. The, you know, those terms are, are thrown around so much. You know, it used to be people didn't talk much about spirituality outside of like theological seminaries and stuff like that. It's a pretty rarefied topic. The idea that you could sort of separate out, you know, like the the... Uh, the gold from the dross or whatever, the wheat from the chaff. So, um, but uh, it's come to mean something today. You know, religion, I think people think think of that in terms of organized religion, like with, a, you know, a, a coherent theology, a set of beliefs, behaviors, and rituals, and things like that. And spirituality is a little bit more personal and maybe freeform. After having thought about it for a long time, um, I've kind of decided that <clears throat> that religions begin as spiritual movements, right? And um, religions, when they're born, like they're more like channels, right? They're they're like conduits through which the spirit flows, right? And uh, then at a certain point, people begin to get invested in them, right? They they you know they build buildings, they you know develop intellectual property, sets of beliefs. Their identity is all tied up with it. And then at some point, people said, oh, we need to preserve this or conserve it. And so at that moment, you know, this 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 channel, right, this like, you know, divine pipeway, you know, through which the, the, the wind of spirit blows gets closed off on one end. 
and it becomes a vessel or a container. And religion is a container for the spirit, right? It's not the spirit, as we've seen demonstrated too many times and throughout history, religions do absolutely terrible things. Uh, they do the worst things imaginable, worst things you can possibly think of. They also do some of the best things you can possibly think of, right? But it's because they become human institutions uh, where where people uh, have something at stake and something to lose, oftentimes uh, property or power. Uh, so I, I tend to think uh, nowadays that people say when they speak of spirituality, they, they think of a freer, more personal uh, relationship often to their own religious beliefs, like in the, the Way of the Rose, our Rosary Fellowship, right? We pray the Rosary, and the central figure of the of the Rosary is uh, the Virgin Mary. But many people in our fellowship think of her as Ma Kali, or the Great Mother, right? They may have other names for her, and they may not think of her in Catholic terms. And so I think those people would say that their relationship to the Rosary is probably a spiritual relationship rather than a religious relationship. Does that make sense? It does. And very well explained. Thank you for that. Circling back to your monkhood, is that a word? Monkhood, <laughs> when you were a monk. Of course, I'm raised Catholic. So I think of monks in monasteries from the Catholic perspective. And then I know there are Buddhist monks and, are, and I know there are other types of monks, even in the Indian culture and the right. Hindu and all of that. They're and more like the different, I think. I was just going to ask, is is that the same kind of a correlation as what you just mentioned between religion and spirituality, that, that when somebody decides that they want to dedicate their life to prayer or meditation or all of the above, or are you basically doing the same thing just within different dogma beliefs? Well, I think people have a lot of different you know, reasons for, uh, you know, becoming a monk or a nun. Uh, you know, I became a Buddhist monk and there was no traditional framework for that growing up. You know, I had to sort of break with my religious tradition of my past and not break with my parents because they weren't, uh, you know, I won't say they were absolutely thrilled about the idea that they didn't like actively forbid it or impede it. My uh, grandmother even showed up for my ordination. So, uh, you know, I did have some support, but it, there was no, uh, uh, you know, there was no predicate for it. There was no, um, uh, you know, I was not following, you know, a, a pathway that had been laid down by generations of, say, uncles who had been priests or monks or things like that. I think uh, some people become monks or nuns in the Catholic tradition because they have family members, right? Or people in their community they're emulating. So I didn't have anything like that. But I think that uh, uh, most people who do join religious orders uh, either know what to expect or they don't. Those who don't know what to expect probably think they're going to have a very spiritual life, right? There won't be any pettiness. There won't be any arguing. There won't be any boredom. You know, it'll be, uh, you know, uh, high octane spirit all the time. Uh, and in fact, you know, they're pretty quickly disabused of that notion. In fact, a lot of the sort of hazing in monasteries is designed to sort of break you of that idea. And you get used to the rituals and the routines, which are pretty much fine monastic life. There's a great, great story from the Middle Ages that's about this very thing. This was one of the most popular folk, folk tales uh, in the high Middle Ages, and so popular, in fact, that once it, somebody pulled it, it spread within a matter of decades all across Europe. And wherever it went, 
people adapted it slightly so that it changed a little bit, but the bones of it remained the same. And then the story, a young boy whose great joy in life is every day to weave a crown of roses for the statue of the Virgin Mary in his village church. This is his favorite thing to do. And from the time he's able to walk around the fields and gather flowers, he does this. So he gets a little older and he thinks, oh, I just love doing this. This is, the, this is the thing I love most in life. I love the lady. I love picking flowers for her. I love offering them to her. So why not become a monk where I get to be with her all the time and think about her all the time, right? So he goes to the uh, uh, monastery, local monastery. They accept him. He's put to work doing backbreaking, boring work. And furthermore, he's forbidden from observing this custom, which has its roots in paganism, right? <laughs> Weaving of roses, right? These, these sort of eros-infused flowers, right, that have been used for thousands of years to worship the Great Mother, right? This tradition of weaving crowns for the statues, that started with like Inanna and Isis, right? And, and, and uh, uh, all these other, you know, goddesses from the Mediterranean basin. So it's regarded as a pagan practice. And so his superiors forbid it. And so suddenly he's stuck in this monastery, you know, and his reasons for going there haven't panned out at all. He doesn't know what to do. Finally, he decides, you know, it was better before. I'm going to go back to my village and go back to my old practice of, of weaving these flowers. Now, this is basically the same story in, in every language, right? It just get, changes very slightly. It's a very, very durable story because it, it condensed uh, a, a bit of history and a bit of wisdom. So he decides he's leaving. He's going to stop and apologize to the statue in the chapel at the convent and say, I'm sorry, lady, I have to go back to my own village and serve my lady with her flowers because I can't do this anymore. And as he's standing there, the statue comes to life and says, don't be depressed and upset because I'm going to teach you how to weave uh, a, a crown of flowers for me with your prayers. And so the lady tells him to recite an Ave Maria, Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Just that short form was probably at that time what people were actually saying. The rest of the prayer hadn't been added on yet. So, uh, so she teaches him to recite 50 of them. And as he's reciting them for every prayer he says, an actual rose comes out of his mouth. And these, the lady herself, or in some stories, it's an angel, comes and weaves the crown of flowers put on her head. And so he ends up staying in the monastery, but his relationship to the monastic life is completely changed. It's so no longer you know, the fulfillment of this outward obligation, he has the, the flame of the spirit is lit from within. So this story tells a bit of history because, you know, these people were, were basically worshiping the great mother for thousands of years before Christianity showed up. And once Christianity showed up, everybody was illiterate. Even the local priests were illiterate. Most of them had no idea what was in the Bible. There's a famous story about a priest that goes into an area of England and asked some of the local people, do you know who Jesus is? The guy said, yes, I know who Jesus is. He's that bloke that hangs upside down and bleeds from a tree. Oh, my. <laughs> Talking about Odin, right? The god Odin. 
right? So this is how thinly Christianized uh, Europe was at this time, but they had a great devotion to the lady. And so when the church came in with the Virgin Mary, everybody saw her and said, oh, we know who she is. You want us to pray the rosary? We'll do it. (laughs) They were all over it, right? They didn't reject it at all, right? They might have some quibbles or questions about some of the things the priest said, but very quickly they adapted their own gods to saints, right? You know, various, um, I think Anubis became St. Christopher, you know, like they they incorporated, and Catholicism was uh, at that point, I think, a very uh, uh, tolerant religion in terms of interpolating other people's belief systems. So they just said, we'll just graft what we have to offer these people onto their existing uh, stories and beliefs. And so it was a very sort of seamless uh, operation throughout Europe. I think Europe was Christianized largely because uh, you know the the various bishops and priests and cardinals were willing to to sort of let go of a lot of you know theology and keep their eye on the ball and try to you know uh, you know get people uh, praying the rosary, which they did in great great numbers. So this story is really about that that sort of transition. But it goes from the spirituality, right, to the religious observance, which pretty much kills the spirit, to something beyond it, which isn't entirely religion and maybe isn't, you know, just a sort of a personal spirituality either, which is a more uh, communal, uh, wholesome, grounded practice, if that makes sense. It does. And this is one of the things that I just admire so much about you is you're a combo platter of historian, archaeologist, <laughs> philosopher, and a great storyteller. And I'm you, very curious. You wrap all this stuff together into a fascinating narrative in your books and just talking with you. It's just fascinating. I keep I've told Perdita, your wife, a couple of times, I said, I just want to travel with you guys because it would be so much fun. <laughs> well, that's an idea. <laughs> explore things. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to the monk thing, what was the catalyst for you to leave the monastery? And what happened after that? Right. Well, it, I mean, it's a complicated story. Again, it's sort of contained really, you know, in that that little uh, folktale from the Middle Ages. I, I had kind of the same trajectory. You know, the things that led me to the monastery uh, basically, you know, led me in the front door, sort of, you know, impelled me out the back door in the end. You know, I, I found that, uh, you know, life of obligation and following rituals and this and that wasn't necessarily what I <clears throat> what I wanted to do. Uh, I also, you know, my eyes were opened about that time. Uh, I, I had become a Buddhist, uh, in a, you know, I, I was very, very idealistic. I'm sure that when my Japanese Zen master, you know, when I showed up on his front door, he took one look at me and said, you know, I've got a live one, right? Because I believed everything he told me. I did whatever he said. You know, I... What you year know, was this? Like, was this in this the was, 70s? Or? I met him. I met him in the 70s and studied with him for 14 years, last few years of those as a monk and and actually as a teacher running the the, the New York part of the of the operation. At one point he left and went back to Japan for a year and left me in charge and just said, you know what to do, you know. And by the end of that, I decided I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I was ready. I was ready to leave, but he was a very complicated person, this Japanese Zen master, and it came to light that he had had a series of uh, of affairs with students, which, you know, uh, uh, had really destabilized the community. And uh, 
So, you know, I, I ended up leaving. I later went to work for a Buddhist magazine. You know, we tried to, to uh, take him down, actually. Uh, but uh, the princi- he, his lawyers got to the principals involved, three women who had been willing to come forward, but, you know, I think didn't want to be drug into a libel case. And so they pulled out at the last minute. We couldn't publish the piece. But a few years after that, the New York Times assigned one of their top investigative reporters to look into it. And I was the first person he called. And I told him everything I knew. And they, they, uh, you know, they published the story and he was forced to resign. He's dead now. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of made my peace with his memory, largely because I wrote about him in The Way of the Rose. I wrote about the experience of, of uh, seeing, you know, the abuses of power in, in a religious institution uh, up close and feeling myself, you know, embedded and implicated in that and wanting to be free of it. So ultimately I left because I, uh, you know, had decided that um, maybe it wasn't possible to get patriarchy right, right? That's sort of the the dream. The dream is that we're gonna we're gonna get patriarchy right, right? If you, there's a right way to do it, we'll figure it out. Well, it's been thousands of years now, and it hasn't really it hasn't completely panned out. So every once in a while, you get a good one, <laughs> but. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I, I gave up that project myself at a certain point. Well, I think patriarchy has been implemented with a lot of, of control. And the control has come about because there's been so much fear that's yeah. been spread. And then they try and control with fear. And fear is a really good way to control people. We're all hardwired for fear. Yeah. yeah. What's the hour of God and how do you experience it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Julie. <laughs> I, uh, I I wrote a book called um, uh, Waking Up to the Dark, which was originally uh, published in 2015 and has just recently been reissued in paperback. Went out of print for a period of time. Now it's back. And uh, in that book, I basically recorded experiences that I've been having uh, since I was a child. And Perdita uh, furnished the opening line of that book because I couldn't think of how the book should begin. And she said, you need to tell people you're not afraid of the dark. And so that's how the book begins. I am not afraid of the dark. And it's what she always says about me. She says one of the first things she noticed we would go camping. And I was quite content to be in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness in the pitch black. And the reason for that is that when I was a very young child, you know, the the earliest I can remember is when I was like eight years old. We were living in Anniston, Alabama, just a stone's throw from where you are. And uh, we lived about a block from the golf course. And I started waking up in the middle of the night after about four hours of sleep. And, you know, children, you know, get bored easily, you know, so I would lie in bed for, you know, in the beginning for maybe half an hour, an hour. And then, you know, I got up, nobody else was up. Eventually, I made my way out the door. And finally, I discovered that nobody else was awake, you know, wouldn't get in trouble because nobody knew what was happening. So I would go out for these long walks on the golf course under the stars. And uh, I had no idea. I didn't, didn't ever see anybody else out there. Uh, and, um, you know, I had enough sense to know not to tell my parents. They'd assume I was up to something antisocial or something. And I was out in the middle of the night. Uh, so I just sort of kept it to myself, but I kept doing it all, uh, through my childhood and, you know, my teenage years. I chose a, a college, uh, 
the Sewanee, the University of the South, largely based on the fact that it was a rural college uh, on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee with 10,000 acres, most of it undeveloped. So I could walk for two or three hours in the middle of the night if I wanted to without seeing a single electric light. So I had no idea that uh, that there was, you know, any kind of pattern at work in this. I just figured I was eccentric, right? It's what I love to do. I just love walking at night. And so uh, it's about, uh, I think, 1997, I read an article in the New York Times about sleep science. And at the end of that article, referred to some research by a guy named Thomas Ware, uh, he uh, is a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, and he had done a study on electric lights. He took, I think, 20 or 30 people off the streets of Bethesda, Maryland. He took them off all forms of electric lighting for a month. And for the first three weeks, they did what he called repaying the national sleep debt, right? Because Americans are chronically sleep deprived. So they slept for about an hour to an hour and a half more. But at week three, every single person in the study started waking after four hours. Now, you know, I don't know if you've spent any time in the sciences. You know, I did a lot of research for this book and, you know, I wasn't trained as a scientist. But, uh, you know, between studying climate change, species extinction and sleep science, you know, I, I finally sort of came up to speed. So I read a lot of studies. Getting results like that is unheard of. You know, you're lucky if you get statistically meaningful results from a study, right? But to find every subject doing the same thing is groundbreaking. So where was stunned at this. Uh, people would wake after four hours, they would stay awake for two hours, and then they would fall asleep for another four hours. And he interviewed people and said, well, what's going on? They said, we just feel so quiet and peaceful during those two hours. And he said, how do you feel during the day? They all said the same thing. We've never been awake before. Our whole lives, we never feel like we've never been awake. We're finally awake, right? And so this discovery was basically the discovery that human beings left to their own devices sleep in two segments every night with a gap hour or two in the middle of the night. And that during that time, the mind is in a state of consciousness that isn't waking or sleeping, but is something in between. If you've ever read the Song of Songs in the Bible, so like a love poem, how it got into the Bible, nobody really knows. It's an erotic love poem right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, right? But there's a beautiful line in it says where the, the, the lover uh, says to her beloved, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And those words, I'm sure, were describing because that particular moment, the Song of Songs, is happening right in that little two-hour gap in the middle of the night. So that's descriptive of that state of mind. For hundreds of thousands of years, probably as long as we've been hominids, right, uh, we've been waking in the middle of the night for two hours of, quote, quiet rest. So Ware got curious about this, and he decided to look into the endocrinology of this event, like what's happening biochemically in the body. He was a he was a psychobiologist, so he sampled their blood, and he figured out that the hormone prolactin, which reaches elevated levels when you're asleep, 
but which normally fall when you, as soon as you wake up, they stayed at sleep levels throughout these two hours in the middle of the night. So it was as if the body were asleep, but the mind was awake. And that was the reason why people felt so peaceful because prolactin is the hormone uh, that elevates in nursing mothers when their milk lets down. It's sometimes called the attachment hormone because it creates such a feeling of peace that it contributes to the bonding between a mother and an infant. It's also the hormone that keeps birds roosting quietly on their nests, right? So that hormone remained at sleep levels. And so there's this, this wonderful peace that, 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 that just naturally occurs when we leave enough darkness on either side of the night to experience that our bodies revert to this, you know, basically paleolithic uh, mode of sleep. Uh, I joked at one point and called it a, uh, a a nightly meditation retreat for every homo sapiens on earth. And the closest thing where it could come to describing this was to compare it to what the state of mind that, that is uh, experienced by monks and nuns during the depths of prayer or contemplation. But there weren't any monks or nuns in his study. There were just ordinary people taken off the streets for a month, taken off all forms of electric lighting and allowed to revert to their primordial state of mind, which was peaceful and awake. Peaceful at night, awake during the day. Isn't that extraordinary? So I called it the hour of God. I gave it that name because religious people do that. You know, it's universal. If you look at all the different monastic traditions, one of the things that they share in common is waking up in the middle of the night to pray. So monks and nuns have known for thousands and thousands of years uh, the value of this period of time in the middle of the night when the when the mind is sort of naturally uh, serene and prayerful i think it's interesting too and i refer people to your book when i talk to clients or somebody who's called into my show and said i keep waking up in the middle of the night and i can't go back to sleep and i'll say what time do you wake up about four yeah how did you know and i'll say well it's called the hour of god yeah that's right That's right. And it's interesting what I see too, Clark, is that the brain has had enough rest that the energy frequency, the vibrational level of the person raises back to the level of spirit. So spirit can communicate with the person at that time, because I always say spirit doesn't communicate on the I feel crappy channels because the vibration (laughs) is too low. And so when people are getting frustrated about not being about being awake in the middle of the night before they understand that maybe it's really a natural thing, what happens? They get frustrated, their cortisol levels go up, causes inflammation, then they're really wired, and then they can't fall back to sleep. Tell all of us about what you have experienced. And certainly the the book, you're, you know, waking to the dark is is very much about this, but give us a little synopsis of the most interesting figure you've run into in your nightly (laughs) sojourns out in the woods. Well, first of all, before that, I want to say that I'm sure that you're familiar with the state of mind, because as I've talked to uh, psychics, mediums, people who speak to the dead, people who have that open channel, again and again, they describe the same state of mind that they experience, uh, that I experience in the middle of the night. And, and now it can access it, uh, you know, even, even by daylight, you know, after having done it for so long. So, so it's some, a capacity that we all have. 
And, uh, you know, we like to say like, oh, Julie, she's psychic. She can do this, right? And, and, and it's true. But people say that saying, oh, well, I could never do that, right? When in yeah. fact, this is a capacity that we all uh, that we all have and we can all tap into. Well, I think what you're probably uh, leading into is, um, you know, I, on the night of uh, June 15th, 2011, if you'd taken a tour of my fairly large spiritual library, right, a library of spiritual and religious texts and books, <clears throat> I think you would have found that there was exactly one book on my shelf about the Great Mother or the Divine Feminine. It wasn't just that I had no interest in the subject. I, I, I had no awareness of it. And that one book, The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, to give you some idea of how shut down I was and <clears throat> how strong a patriarchal mindset I had, that one book, The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, I had read two or three times without realizing that it was about the Great Mother. Now, if you've ever read that book, you go, how in the world could Clark possibly read that book and not understood that it was about Kali, you know, about the mother. He talks about her on every page. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I was just blocked. So anyway, I uh, had been out with some friends to a restaurant. We came home, beautiful night, full moon. Eclipse had just happened a few hours before, lunar eclipse. I went to bed. I woke up from my usual walk during the, the hour of God, put my hand on the doorknob to leave the house. And I felt a hand on my right shoulder and a voice, a man's voice said, don't go out tonight, stay inside and be very still. And so, you know, I'm not a person who hears voices. Spent a lot of time in a meditation question. I spent a lot of time walking in the middle of the night in prayer, but uh, you know, I've, not a person who's necessarily given to exalted uh, visionary states. But I had heard this voice once before, many years before, when, when my, my family and I were on a plane that we thought was going down. And, uh, uh, you know, they tell you in the movies and everything, they tell you, you know, they show you the stewardess are sort of like saying, prepare for impact, you know, put your head down, everybody, you know, move your trays and stuff like that. You know what? You don't want to know what flight attendants are actually doing when they think they're going to die. They are crying. <laughs> they are crying. They are praying. They're calling their mothers on the phone, right? Because that's what we saw. So everybody thought they were going to die. So my uh, daughter turns to uh, Perdita. Sophie turns to Perdita. She's about, I guess she must be about five or six at the time. And she said, mommy, are we going to die? And Perdita says the most comforting thing you can say as a mother, mommy will never let you go. <laughs> so Sophie, smart as a whip, even then, she turns to me and she says, daddy, daddy, mommy thinks we're going to die. Are we going <laughs> to die? <laughs> and I close my eyes. You know, I couldn't meditate. I couldn't do anything. I was just in the same, holding my daughter's hand across the aisle and and I closed my eyes and I heard a voice and I, you know, and I said to myself, a deep prayer, are we going to die? And a voice says, no, I don't think so. A man's voice. So that Did was it voice sound like heard. it was God talking to no, you? No, you know. Did it just it, sound it, like a regular man's voice? It, it, it was a very confident, very, uh, it was a very confident, very um, 
I won't say mild voice, but just a very confident male voice. Just it wasn't a, James Earl Jones talking in his James, nothing like that. Voice. Not the voice of God. But yeah. it was it was definitely a voice that says, No, I don't think so. So I told Sophie that I said, No, I don't think so. And a few minutes later, the pilot pulled it out, pulled us out. We were in a dive, headed for the ground. And he pulled us out of the dive and got us on the ground. And men in, in uh, you know, uh, Mylar suits rushed onto the plane with fire gear and everything. So we got off the plane, but nobody was nobody was injured. So I, I knew to to listen to this voice. So I got on the couch and, you know, from my years of being a Zen monk, you know, I knew how to get still. You know, that, that's the one takeaway from all those years on the cushion. I could make myself still and quiet my mind. So that's what I did got on the couch, I closed my eyes, and I made myself very still. And I guess I was meditating. I wasn't having many thoughts, you know, just uh, in that sort of in-between space in the middle of the night. And I've been doing that all my life. So I knew that that state of mind, a very calm place. And after about 45 minutes, I suddenly felt that there was somebody in the room. So I opened my eyes. And at first, all I saw were two reed stalks blowing. It's like the house had disappeared. I was lying on the couch. I'm looking at it right there, just in the other room. And um, I saw two reed stalks blowing as if uh, like in an invisible wind, like it was in the middle of a marsh. And then the reed stalks vanished. And in their place was the face of a young girl, about 17 years old, and uh, very close, like about two feet away from me. And... Uh, her face was moonlight, seemed like it was glowing as if it were lit by the moon. And uh, she had freckles around her nose and uh, close cropped auburn hair, hazel eyes. And she had a uh, X of black electrical tape over her mouth. And I looked at her eyes and they were, they were very, very urgent. Now my Zen master, my Japanese Zen master, who for all his failings was a fairly uh, adept teacher of meditation, had uh, instructed me for many years that if you have experiences like this, they're called makio or illusion. They're not real. So just stare them down, give them no attention, give them no affect, and they'll just go away. So not only had I been practicing this for years, I'd been teaching people how to do this, right? Anything happens that seems a little weird, you know, during meditation or you're imagining things or you know, you feel upset or shocked or anything like that, just let it go. So I looked into her eyes for all of about three seconds. And then I thought to myself, you know, the Zen masters were wrong. <laughs> like that was the end of my Zen career, like in a sec, a hot flat second, that was it. I said, oh, they were wrong. Because the, the face I was looking at was the realest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know, it's like, you know, I was unreal and she alone was real. Like if this was unreal, then there's no reality, right? If, if she's not real, then, then it's a wash. I'm ready to cash in my chips now. So I knew that the, the face I was looking at, you know, I, I wrote in, in waking up to the dark, that I felt like I was looking at the face of God, except it was the face of a girl. And I was unprepared for that. And no preparation for an encounter with the divine feminine. But you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't know what to say. I looked into her eyes and I started to speak, but she shook her head like, no, can't say anything. So I did the only thing I think that any human being would do. 
And I leaned forward and I pulled the tape off of off of her mouth. And when I pulled it off, there was a she made a sound. It was like a gasp, like she as if she hadn't been able to breathe until then. And uh, it was a sound that, you know, I, I described it later as a sound that didn't fit the size of her body. It felt like sounded like air rushing into a crypt that had been sealed for thousands of years. So she gave this great gasp. And then she just looked at me and I looked at her and I, we looked at one another for, you know, a seemingly a very long time. And then the Zen monk part of my brain won out and I closed my eyes and went back to meditating like I'd been taught to do. And when I opened them, you know, 20, 30, 45 minutes later, she was gone. But her presence since then has never left my side. So I went to sleep and she was present. I couldn't see her, but I felt her presence when I went to sleep that night. And when I woke up that morning, next morning, it was the first thing I felt. And so I came downstairs and I turned the house over looking for that X of black electrical tape. Of course, I didn't find it. I was sure it was there. My kids, you know, Perdita, everybody asked me, what are you looking for? I couldn't even explain. I couldn't even speak. I couldn't, couldn't begin to try to explain what had happened. So, you know, two weeks passed before I saw her again. And the next time I saw her, I was prepared. And this time I was going to ask who she was. And I said, who are you? And she said, I am the hour of God. Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals. B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals, dot com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. So I, I am that peace i am that 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 deep serenity i am that point primal point of connection with the mother i am the mother so you know there was about 10 weeks after that where i was saying oh god please don't let it be the virgin mary i, I knew some part of me suspected because i thought oh my god i'm going to become catholic i don't want to become catholic <laughs> i've left all these religions behind last thing I want to do is convert to anything else, right? So, uh, but about 10 weeks later, we were on Cape Cod, and uh, she woke me in the middle of the night, and she said, if you rise to say the rosary tonight, a, a column of saints will support your prayer. And so I, I had a rosary. I taught myself the rosary years earlier, you know, 
And, and I bought one at a flea market the day before. I just happened to have it in my pocket. So I pulled it out and I started saying, and I woke up in the morning and I said, well, I'm not Catholic, but I'm also not stupid. There's only one person, one figure in, in world religion I've ever heard of who who asks you, invites you to pray the rosary and makes promises based on whether you accept the invitation or not. So at that point, I thought it was the Virgin Mary. But I think I knew instantly that she was older than that and more than that, that she would present herself in that shape and that form because I could understand it and relate to it. But that the figure I was talking to was, in fact, the, the uh, you know, what our, our Paleolithic ancestors would have thought of as the Great Mother. What a story. I get goosebumps every time I hear you tell it. And that's why I wanted you to share it with everybody. Why do you think that she came to you? Was it because you were so ensconced in patriarchal thoughts and, and traditions? I don't know. Maybe I was the only, maybe I was the only one who was awake. Well, true. Good point. I mean, there. literally awake in the middle of the night when she arrived. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. People sometimes will say uh, <clears throat> to me, oh, you channel the Virgin Mary and I always correct them and say, no, I, I don't channel anything. Uh, that implies some special capacity on, or, or facility on my part. Or, you know, even, even the idea of a channel is like to contain something or to focus it. And I can't do any of that. It's all her. So I, I don't think of myself as having any particular skill. She did say once uh, she compared me to a uh, to a broken bamboo flute. She says, but if I hold you just right and blow gently, I can get the sound out of you. So I interpreted that to mean that I didn't have any particular uh, 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 qualifications for the job. Uh, but, you know, my own unique brokenness, you know, we're all broken, but my brokenness, you know, uh, did, did not get in the way, at least, of her uh, being able to speak to me and for me being able to tell others, uh, you know, what she had said. And you still have ongoing conversations with the Virgin Mary yeah. often, right? If yeah, not well, we, we, we tend to, we tend to re- refer to her as Our Lady because it's a larger, broader term. and. Uh, you know, our fellowship is, you know, we have Buddhist uh, yogis, uh, who, you know, for, forgone all kinds of religious connection. We have Catholics, we have Jews, uh, witches, we have a lot of pagans in our fellowship. So uh, the term Our Lady, I think, is a sort of a broader, more inclusive, older sort of term. So uh, so we tend to use that. But yeah, she, she continues to talk. Uh, she... Uh, speaks to us every three days, um, and uh, Perdita will write down uh, the things she says. Sometimes she, uh, at least at some point during every month, she delivers a message to be delivered on the 16th of every month, which is the, uh, you know, the day of the month on which she first appeared in, uh, on, in the early hours of uh, June 16th, 2011. So uh, there is a message that is uh, posted in our Facebook group and at our website on the 16th of every month. So she continues to give those messages and she does continue to talk. Yeah. The 16th or the 16th of the month, the first day she appeared to you, not necessarily. Right. Yeah. The, the right yeah. here in here in Woodstock. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And do you ever smell roses? I know that a lot of her 
apparitions and her appearances, like I think of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Lourdes and elsewhere, Medjugorje, they talk about people can smell the scent of roses in the air. Have you experienced that? No, no, I uh, I haven't. I know that a lot of people do, a lot of people in our fellowship. And, you know, pe- all kinds of people experience Our Lady. You know, she uh, <clears throat> just uh, uh, beginning in 1830 with the uh, apparition uh, at Rudabach of Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, which is sort of, you know, what most people think of as sort of the first of the great Marian apparitions of the modern age. She has appeared... 500 times that the church makes note of, okay? And the church approves a very small, you know, as theologically correct, a very small percentage of those 500. And those 500 themselves are a very small percentage of the number of times she's appeared and the number of people she's appeared to. So we have no idea how many people. Uh, You know, the for our book launch for Way of the Rose in New York City, uh, the Open Center, uh, you know, hosted us. And I think there were, I don't know, maybe around 100 people there. And uh, at one point, somebody asked my, asked my least favorite question to be asked at a book book signing, right? They said, uh, isn't it special to to get to talk to the, to the Virgin Mary, which is a code for aren't you special or something like that, you know? What do you say to something like that, you know? Uh, if you thought you were special, I, you know, you know, you had some special capacity for talking to the Virgin Mary, I can pretty much guarantee she probably wouldn't talk to you, right? That's not how she works, you know, because she's going to tell you to do things, and she's probably going to tell you to do difficult things, which she does. Um, and, uh, you know, so you got to be willing to, you know, to do what she says, and, you know. So anyway, so I, I didn't know what to say. I looked at the audience, and suddenly I knew, you know. I don't know whether she put the thought in my head or not. I didn't hear her speak, but suddenly I knew what to say. And I already knew the answer. I asked the question because I already knew the answer. I said, how many people are here tonight because they have had what they consider a definitive proof of, of Our Lady, like her her intervention or her presence in their life, like they've heard her say something or some miracle has occurred or they've had some direct encounter." And almost every hand went up, right? The whole rest of the night, we could have just spent listening to people's stories. And in fact, we do that at a lot of our Way of the Rose meetings. People will tell their own stories. People often arrive in our fellowship with the stories of their own to tell. So I'm always really kind of, uh, you know, amazed at, uh, you know, how Our Lady will uh, intervene in people's lives and change the course of their lives, as she did with me. I've seen her multiple times in healings done on me and healings done with other people with whom I'm working. And she always appears to me like she looks on the statues in the Catholic churches. She's got like a white veil thing on and a blue robe. Is that what she really looks like? That's how she appears to me. So I know who she is. Yeah, that's not how she appears to me. I wasn't raised Catholic, so I don't see her that way. Right. And that's the thing about spirit is that everybody has the ability. We all come in with it. Most of us doubt our own ability. I did not have dead people chasing me since childhood. I learned how to do all this stuff. (laughs) And, and it, with lots of practice, you start to believe the information that you get and the, 
and the uh, visions that that we all see. We're we're getting information all day long, every day, and also in our sleep, but we're just not cognizant of it. We don't take it as being something that's legit. We think, oh, that's just our imagination. Well, yeah, spirit works through our imagination because you have and and not imagination in that I'm going to imagine that she's going to show up with a white veil on and a blue robe. That puts us in a box. If we leave our imagination open and we can just accept what's coming in, then that's how we're led. That's how we get the information along those lines. What's the best way, in your opinion, to communicate with God's spirit source? Is there a best way? If somebody says to you, hey, Clark, how how do I pray? Right. Or how do I communicate with God or spirit or source, whatever you want to call it? What what would be your answer to that question? Well, you know, I, I guess my my answer, you know, I'll give you two answers. I'll give you the answer that, you know, I probably gave in my, you know, two or three lifetimes ago if somebody asked me that question, right? Because at, at that point, you know, people live more like in traditional religious communities. You know what I mean? Like uh, you know, where there was a kind of a, a box that held spiritual experience and there was a, a sort of a go-to method or way of, of praying or uh, communing with, with God or the, the great mother or, or, or divinity. <clears throat> so, you know, the thing I would say probably is the thing you're most familiar with, the thing that connects with you at the uh, deepest, uh, 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 sort of most primal level. I'll tell you a brief story that illustrates this point. Perdita, uh, very uh, when our daughter first got sick, she has a, a, a genetic condition uh, that took a long time to get diagnosed, and uh, you know we were often terrified that uh, you know she was going to die during the first few years, and uh, she was in a lot of pain one day. And Perdita was working with her personal trainer, an eighty-year-old little tiny woman who kicked her ass basically and really whipped her into shape, Joe. So uh, so she's working with Joe and Perdita's very upset. And, you know, Joe stops the session and says, sweetie, what's what's the problem? And she, you know, Perdita says, you know, Sophia's sick. We don't know what's the matter with her. We're worried. You know, we've been to so many doctors. We don't have a diagnosis. We have no idea what to do. And, you know, that day she was particularly in a lot of pain. And um, so Joe says, you need to go see Fiona, right? And she takes a card for the White Griffin, which was Fiona's shop. Fiona is the sort of stage name or professional name of the psychic Susan Saxman. So we had never met Susan. Perdita hadn't met her. So so she decides to go to, uh, she decides to go see Fiona. And, you know, she ended up writing a book called The Reluctant Psychic about Fiona's life. And, you know, it was a whole relationship there. And that was a sort of a point of beginning for us in a lot of ways. I'd not, never spent much time with psychics or with the dad or any of that. And Perdita, you know, had a longstanding ancestor practice, but she'd never really hung out with psychics or, you know, knew, knew much about that, that side of the world. So anyway, the way Joe convinced her to go was Joe told her the following story. She said, uh, my husband, Arthur, had lapsed into a coma. We all knew Arthur. 
And he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for a month. And he was still alive. And he wouldn't die. And Joe was distraught. And she said, I can't. He's suffering. I'm suffering. I know he needs to go. I know he wants to go, but he won't die. What does it take for him to die? Something needs to happen. Something hasn't happened yet. And so somebody tells her to go see Fiona. Walks in. Fiona says, ah, your husband, he's got to die, but you got to call the rabbi. You won't die without the rabbi. And so Joe says, what are you, nuts? It says, Arthur and I haven't been Jewish for 50 years. We're Tibetan Buddhists, right? We sponsored monks. We've been practicing Tibetan Buddhism for 50 years. We haven't set foot in the synagogue in 50 years. The last thing, believe me, on his deathbed that Arthur wants is a rabbi. So Fiona says, all right, you came to me. You asked me the question. I'm just telling you what the dead tell me. The dead tell me he's not going to die without a rabbi. So Joe is at her wit's end. And so she goes home. And she calls the local uh, rabbi, uh, Jonathan Kliegler, friend, you know, mutual friend of all of ours, a wonderful man. And she says, Jonathan, I, you know, I know that, you know, we know you, but, you know, well, we're not good Jews. So we haven't, been, we haven't been to synagogue in like 50 years, but, but Arthur needs you. Would you come? And, and Jonathan says, sure, I'm happy to. Jonathan walks in the door. Arthur dies in 30 seconds. Wow. So that's the first answer. The first answer is, you know, this, choose the thing that's closest to your spiritual root and be honest about it, right? You could have rejected it. Like, you know, it's not like Arthur is going to have a, you know, a deathbed conversion back to Judaism and come out of a coma. That's not the point of this, right? But the point is that some deep part of his being, right, had sort of like a Jewish soul, right? That Jewish soul wanted to practice Tibetan Buddhism in this life and didn't have any use for rabbis, but it was still there inside of him. And so I think that for people who have had some point of spiritual connection, maybe from childhood, if that if that part of them is still alive, then some sort of a way of prayer or meditation or practice that lies close to that root is a good place to start. Because then you it's honest, you know, and, and it doesn't, you can you know, you don't have to, doesn't mean you have to go back to church or, you know, if you were brought up as a Jehovah's Witness and you left it, you have to go back to the, you know, to the Jehovah's Witness or become Catholic again or whatever. It's nothing like that. So, but find the thing, be honest with yourself. What What's the deepest place of belief within you? Like your belief sphere, what's this at the center of your belief sphere, right? What defines you spiritually? And the answer can be surprising. Sometimes just figuring that out is a journey in itself. Like, you know, just to figure out, well, what lies at the center of, of my spiritual being? What is that little nucleus, like the nucleus of an atom, you know, around which, you know, the rest of my busy electron life is spinning, you know? What's charged in that, that core? So the other the other answer, which is, you know, in some sense easier and more practical, especially for people who haven't had any strong point of spiritual connection, is to give yourself permission to try a lot of things so that you just follow your heart and your interests until you find the thing that works. Like, I believe me, I, I would never have said during my Zen years that I was going to end up praying the rosary. 
you know, like praying the rosary, starting a rosary fellowship, you know, with thousands of people and devoting so much of my time to writing about the rosary and researching it. I would never believe that if you told me 20 years ago, but I tried so many different things. And that was the thing that, you know, finally really, really stuck. So, so you just have to, you have to give yourself permission to, you know, you have to have a little spiritual wanderlust and just wander, wander about through various spiritual practices, you know, the benefit of the age we live in that the downside of that is that we're born into this world sometimes feeling like we don't have a spiritual home like maybe we're born to parents who gave up their religion or maybe they were born of grandparents who didn't have any religious tradition or any religious community at all many people find themselves in that place the downside of it is that we may be bound we may have found ourselves thrown into a world without many uh, spiritual resources within our family or our immediate community. The upside of it is we have tremendous freedom to explore. So those are the two answers. I, th- I think you have. I think they 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 balance one another because you know not everybody is the same. So, well, I think you say it so eloquently too that whatever that core is, and certainly I've worked with thousands and thousands of families who have a loved one who's dying. And you are absolutely right. So often it comes down to their core. They haven't gone to church for a long time, but they want to see the priest or they want to see the rabbi or they want to see whomever. And they want to know that there's more to it. And that's what's so comforting at the end of life when family members, the deceased family members, spirits and the spirits of deceased pets are there to welcome them. And there's an exercise that I do, and there's a chapter in my book called The Walk to Heaven. And I do it often with people who are dying that are afraid to die because they've been so inundated with, are you going to fly or are you going to fry? And and that kind of thing. And when they see what the what's waiting for them, that all their loved ones are going to be right there when they cross the veil, go into heaven. And uh, it's very comforting for them. And most of the time when I do a walk to heaven with somebody, they will, and it's all remote. It's all telepathic communication. They'll usually pass fairly quickly thereafter. My father said, as he was, uh, the week before he died, he said, at one point I arrived and he said, I just got back. And he was in his hospital bed. You know, I go, oh, really? Where were you? They said, well, I was on a tour bus and we were going to a place to the elevator. We're going to take the elevator to the garden party. And I said, oh, and who's at the garden party? I said, a lot of people I knew, a lot of people hanging out there. Yeah. I said, was it nice? He said, yeah, I'm going to go back, but not not yet. So he was seeing all of that. He was. Yeah. Yeah, he was seeing all of his loved ones in the garden party. I love that. And obviously going through the different phases of your life, you've been preparing for all of this work that you're doing now, and you've been led, not maybe even knowing up front, okay, this is where I'm being led. I I don't know know where the end point (laughs) is here, but you were being led. And how did you know that it was where you were being led and that that was the right path to follow? Was there something that really felt right you were getting 
information from Our Lady or from other other spiritual entities? What what was it that let you know that you were being led on this path and that that was the that was the fork for you to take? Well, for me, there was it didn't feel like there was really even any choice. I guess there was a choice, you know, because I could have I suppose I could have said, oh, this is Machia. This is illusion and just rejected uh, her presence. It's unthinkable to me now. And even at the time, it didn't even seem like an option. It didn't seem possible that she was an illusion or that she wasn't real. Uh, So, but for me, I think, um, I guess the sign that it was, uh, you know, a major course correction in my life, right? That I had been you know, I I have joked for years that, you know, I left the monastery and then spent another 20 years trying to get patriarchy right, right? Because all of the traditions, I, st- I had no idea that that's what they had in common. They were all basically monastic, priestly, you know, sort of, you know, religious, spiritual traditions, right? And, and I studied dozens of them, you know, often in vivo, like going, you know, apprenticing myself with a rabbi, you know, to study Jewish prayer or, you know, I even studied with the Jehovah's Witness for a while, not because I like their theology, but that their method of Bible study, I thought was really interesting because they relate every verse in the Bible to another verse and they jump around. I thought that was fascinating. So I said, I'll have an open mind. I'll see what they say about the Bible. So I had done all of these different things, but there were, there were all ways of trying to get paid patriarchy right. So when Our Lady showed up, I thought, oh, <laughs> there's this whole world that I didn't even know existed, right? I didn't, you know, I was raised without the Virgin Mary. I was raised a Southern Protestant. So you had the Our Father, but not the Hail Mary. You had God the Father, but uh, but not the Mother of God, right? So no presence of the Divine Feminine at all in the tradition I was I was brought up in. But I think that if you ask maybe Perdita, right? Say, what what was different? Like, you know, you say, you know, your husband has this experience and then something's different afterwards. What was it? I think she would probably tell you that I had been incredibly spiritually restless for the whole time she knew me. Like I was constantly moving around from one thing to another. During my Zen years, I was totally monogamous to Zen. Like Zen and me, we were like this. I never looked at another religion, (laughs) never strayed, never wandered for a second, right? I was in it to win it. But the moment I I stepped out the other side of Zen, you know, it was, you know, the the world was my spiritual oyster. I was curious about everything. I studied all these different traditions. I was, um, you know, pretty will tell you that I am, you know, very faithful in marriage, you know, but but, but very... uh, uh, you, you know, very much a, a, a sort of spiritual libertine because I was just like, you know, going through all these different traditions for, you know, six months here, a year there, whatever. And then our lady shows up and that's it. Boom. You know, the rosary, her. And, you know, I've never felt tempted for a second to do anything else since then. It was just, you know, I thought, oh, this, this is it. This was where I was, this was where I was going. You know, as un- unlikely a place as it as it seems like for me to have arrived at, this was where I was always headed. Circuitous route, perhaps. And I think that 
religions and different philosophies are all the same source, God, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of like going in the ice cream store. You can get chocolate or vanilla or maple caramel or orange sherbet or whatever. It's all some form of ice cream. It's kind of like all of these different philosophies are all the same thing. And really, when you look at them, they're all saying the same thing, just in a somewhat of a different way, perhaps. And the people who are led to them, that's going to be their frame of reference that's going to help them increase their spirituality is my take on it. Sounds like you have found the same thing with your exploration of a bunch of different religions. In closing, if there's one thing that you would like our listeners to know or to take away from this conversation, what would that be? Well, I mean, you know, relative to where we started with the book, I think that if they wake up in the middle of the night, it's not because there's something wrong with them, right? That human beings are, are, are programmed, you know, like genetically programmed, it's wired into our, into our DNA to, to wake after four hours of rest and wake to a place of peace. Now, if we, you know, stay up late and keep the lights on, but, you know, chances are we won't necessarily experience that, but we can work it from the other side. You know, there's the literal dark, turning off the lights at dusk and giving ourselves more time in the numinous, you know, it may be that, uh, Somebody like you or or Fiona, Susan Saxman, can access that state of mind, uh, you know, even by daylight. But for a lot of people, you know, uh, having more darkness, literal darkness as their life is helpful. But it's important to work it from the other side, too, what I call the cultivated dark. And that's prayer, meditation, right? Uh, whatever, yoga, even daydreaming. Like daydreaming is one of the great forgotten spiritual practices, just lying still for 20 minutes a day, right? Or, or twice 20 minutes in the beginning, you know, at some point in the middle of the day, and then maybe in the evening without checking your phone or thinking about your to-do list or getting or spending or shopping or anything like that, but just letting the mind relax. That allows the mind to enter into that in between sort of twilight, dusky sort of like place where we're, we're open to the uh, intimations of spirit. So, and I think you're right, you know, going back to that study by Thomas Ware, he decided that uh, in the end, that uh, he said that probably as human beings have closed down this channel, by compressing their sleep nights like their work days into convenient eight-hour blocks as we shut down that channel that opens naturally in the middle of the night. He says we've lost touch with the wellspring of myths and fantasies and our connection to the ancestral realm, right? And he said that those who practice meditation and prayer and yoga and uh, uh, spiritual bodywork modalities like that, Tai Chi, all these different various practices, right? Tarot, uh, that they are attempting to recover what in prehistoric times human beings would have regarded as their natural birthright, which is this open channel uh, that everyone had. I think that exists within, that portal exists within each one of us. And where it opens and the circumstances under which it opens will determine, you know, what kind of spiritual life and beliefs that person has, like you said, right? It's all ice cream. 
but uh, but but at base, you know, at, at our most basic, we are that hour of God waiting to happen, waiting for an opening to express itself. So I guess that's what I would would say in the end. Well said. Thank you. How can people learn more about you and your work? Well, uh, there are two easy places to uh, uh, to find us. One is on Facebook. We have a group called The Way of the Rose on Facebook. And, uh, you know, just join, say, you know, there will be some questions. How did you hear about us? Say, I heard about you on Ask Julie. (laughs) The Julie Ryan Show. And, you know, they're through the door. Or they can go to our website, wayoftherose.org. And that has, uh, you know, a complete listing of, you know, all our books and, uh, you know, Our Lady's messages and helpful information about the fellowship and praying the rosary and lots of other things. So those are the easiest ways. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us this week. It's always a delight to pick your (laughs) brain about these things. And I always learn a lot. And it's, And it piques my interest and my curiosity and my wanting to learn more about certain things. So thank you for. I'm just returning the favor. You you were kind enough to send me your book at a moment when it was really, really helpful to me, you know, because, you know, here I was turning 65 this summer. And, you know, I, I hadn't other than my grandmother and my nanny who died years ago, I hadn't really lost anybody. I was really unprepared for it. It was a big help. So well, I'm just thank returning you. the favor. <laughs> well, and this is why I do this work, because my spirit guide, Pope Clement VI, said, you need to teach the world what happens when somebody dies. And I said, eh, I'm not doing that. And like you, I've been led to what I'm doing now, never in a million years, ever thinking that I'd be doing this. So everybody, thanks for joining us, sending you lots of love. Mwah from Sweet Home, Alabama, and and also from New York. But Clark is an Alabama guy, so (laughs) for his roots are in Alabama. He was his roots are in Alabama. That's right. I'll be back next week with a regular show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.